Hello and welcome to the MDS podcast, the podcast channel of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. I am Michele Matarazzo from the HM Sinac in Madrid, Spain. It's a great honor to have with me today Professor Gunther Hoglinger, Director of the Department of Neurology of the Hanover Medical School in Germany. He's an expert in the study of atypical Parkinsonisms, and in fact, he's also the chair of the Progressive Sopranucleal Palsy Study Group of the Movement Disorder Society. Hello, Gunther, and welcome to the MDS podcast. Hi, it's my great pleasure to be here. I remember two or three years ago, I was attending a conference and a very well-known neuropathologist said that nowadays in neurodegeneration, we are like infectious disease specialists when there was no microbiology, like diagnosing patients just looking at the pattern of fever peaks throughout the day. Maybe that was a bit exaggerated, but it gives a good idea of the desperate need for biomarkers in neurodegenerative disorders. You are the last author of an article recently published on the Movement Disorders Journal titled Cortical 18F PI2620 Binding Differentiate Corticobasal Syndrome Subtypes, which specifically studies a possible biomarker for this disease. This is a very interesting study on the results of a novel molecular neuroimaging techniques on 45 CBS subjects focusing on the PI2620 et al. tracer and its possible role in the study of this syndrome. We will discuss the results of the study in just a few minutes, but let me start with a couple of questions to understand why you decided to study this. First, what is the corticobasal syndrome? Are we talking about a disease, a clinical picture, a neuropathological entity? What is it? Well, corticobasal syndrome, I will refer to it as CBS in the, in the next couple of minutes, is a clinical syndrome. It results from neurodegenerative diseases which affect both the cerebral cortex and the basal ganglia. CBD, corticobasal degeneration, in contrast, is a neuropathologically defined disease entity. It is defined by the presence of four repeat tau deposits in neurons, oligodendrocytes, and astrocytes in the brain. In distinction of PSP, the shape of these tau deposits in CBD in astrocytes takes the shape of a plug-like appearance. While corticobasal syndrome is a frequent clinical manifestation of corticobasal degeneration, also other neurodegenerative disease entities can present with the clinical picture of CBS, apart from CBD, also PSP, Alzheimer's disease, and sometimes even Parkinson's disease or frontotemporal dementia pathologies can present with CBS. For the evaluation of tau-targeting disease-modifying therapies now and in future, it is therefore important to identify in living patients the neuropathology which is underlying the clinical presentation of corticobasal syndrome. And PET imaging with ligands, which recognize tau and amyloid beta, is a very promising approach to that important question. Excellent. Thank you very much for the clarification. I think it's very important for the listener to know what's the difference between CBS and CBD. So now that we know what we're talking about, currently, how do we diagnose the disease? Is there any good biomarker already, any study that shows that we have a good biomarker, both to diagnose or also to follow its progression? Well, the diagnosis of corticobasal syndrome is currently done by clinical examination. The diagnosis relies on the demonstration of a combination of both cortical and movement disorders clinical signs. Cortical clinical signs can be, for example, apraxia, cortical sensory loss, and the alien limb syndrome. And the movement disorder signs can be akinesia, rigidity, dystonia, and myoclonus. 
this clinical diagnosis can be supported by MRI imaging, demonstrating a combination of cortical and basal ganglionic atrophy, which usually but not always presents in a very strikingly asymmetric manner. A similar information can also be acquired by PET imaging, demonstrating hypometabolism in the corresponding brain areas. These imaging modalities, however, do demonstrate only the consequences of neurodegeneration, namely the brain volume loss, but they do not show the primary cause, which is the aggregation of the tau protein. The tau levels in CSF of patients with CBS and CBD are remarkably normal in the normal range, and therefore they cannot be used to support the diagnosis. Therefore, tau PET imaging come, comes in as a most welcome opportunity. Great. Now, you decided to study the PI2620 PET imaging as a biomarker for CBS. Uh, there are several other tau tracers. Some of them have been out for years already, such as the 18FAB1451. Uh, some others are more novel, such as the 18FPMPBB3. What does the PI2620 have that makes it different from others? Is it better or is it different? Is it more useful for, for what we're looking for right now? Well, all, all currently available tau tracers have been optimized to recognize tau deposits in AD, Alzheimer's disease brains. And as you know, the tau deposits in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's are composed of a mix of both four-repeat and three-repeat tau isoforms. The tau deposits in corticobasal degeneration, as in PSP, for example, uh, are composed, however, of four-repeat tau isoforms only. And therefore, the tau tracers optimized for Alzheimer's disease are less ideal for these four-repeat tauopathies. In our hands, the AB1451, for example, is neither very sensitive nor specific for tau in CBD and PSP. And in a study we published in the JAMA Neurology Journal last year, we were able to show that PI2620 performs in our hands reasonably well in PSP patients. And that was the reason why we studied PI2620 also in CBS patients. Perfect. Can you now summarize the main results of the present study? Yeah, so we scanned 45 patients with corticobasal syndrome and 14 age-matched healthy controls with tau pets. In parallel, we determined the amyloid beta status of these patients by CSF analysis and by uh, amyloid beta PET imaging. Expectedly, about 25% of the CBS patients were amyloid beta positive. That means they had an underlying Alzheimer's disease neuropathology. And all of these Alzheimer's patients were positive, expectedly, for tau PET. From the patients who were amyloid beta negative, only 65% had a positive tau PET. But this percentage of 65% is in perfect agreement with the tau PET positivity among um, Alzheimer's negative CBS patients. So our data indicate that PI2620 PET appears to be very sensitive to identify the patients with a positive tau pathology among the non-Alzheimer's CBS patients. And this is very important information for the planning of future tau-targeting therapeutic studies in CBS patients. Indeed, it, it's an amazing finding. And you also looked at correlation with, uh, with the clinical evaluation of the disease and with the disease duration. Did you find anything interesting from that point of view? 
I think this is a very important area of research that merits further attention. So what we are currently doing is longitudinal imaging. We wish to see whether there is a change in the accumulation rate of tau in patients that can be detected by tau PET in living patients. If we detect indeed positive uh, change over time that might serve as a target engagement biomarker in future therapeutic studies. But uh, I think the currently available data are premature. We need to wait a bit more longer for these longitudinal data in order to make a terminal conclusion. As you were saying before, the availability of a reliable PET tracer for CBS and uh, to differentiate the subtypes of CBS and possibly to follow the progression, it would be a great and major advance in many aspects of the clinical practice and also in research, including, as you were saying, uh, as outcome of clinical trials. How far are we from uh, being able to using this in our clinics? Uh, well, in clinics, we are lacking very important pieces of information in order to get a formal approval of this tracer as a diagnostic tool. FDA will certainly require the uh, validation of our findings against the gold standard diagnosis of neuropathology. This is also an aspect that we're currently working on. So what we wish to do is um, to start up a clinical study now with the inclusion of very early clinical cases to follow them up longitudinally to see both the sensitivity to very early tau PET changes in the brains then the sensitivity to change over time. And ideally, we wish to follow these patients up until autopsy to see that what we get in uh, the tau PET also holds true against the gold standard of the neuropathological diagnosis. This, I think, are important pieces of information that we still require before we can use this tool in clinical routine. I really look forward to see the, the follow-up studies. I really hope this will be useful and we will see this as soon as possible in, in clinical trials and clinical practice. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I wish to thank all the listeners for their interest in tauopathies. I think scientifically this is one of the very, very dynamic fields in movement disorders. So stay tuned and get engaged in that field. Thank you again, Gunther, for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We have interviewed Professor Orglinger on the article Cortical 18FBI 2620 Binding Differentiate Cortical Basal Syndrome Subtypes, published on the Movement Disorders Journal. Thank you all for listening.